so good to see those of you who are here to here this morning and we are glad that many many more are also able to participate online and we say happy sabbath to all of you and it, indeed it is a day to celebrate because we're here somewhat together worshiping our god the book of isaiah is especially strangely relevant in these days um, you wouldn't think a book as old as that would have something to say about the year 2020 or 2021 but it sure does and as i've been blessed to study the lesson uh, in our sabbath school quarterly uh, these weeks i've just been reconvinced of that truth um, for anybody who is not, um, didn't grow up in the Adventist church, like I didn't, um, and has never met this book called the Sabbath School Quarterly, this is what it looks like. And it's a book that's published every three months by our church and has Bible study lessons that are just really good. And for those who um, maybe you're not in a position to come by the church, or maybe you just like to be on the run, you can find the Sabbath School Quarterly is actually an app, a free app that you'll find on your phone. And I find that very helpful myself. I, I have my Sabbath School lesson. Anytime I have a few minutes and want to look at it and get inspired, I have it handy all the time. So our, our, our sermon today is really a sermon by four, the four of us who are going to be bringing this study to you, we, we decided to just use the, the, the Bible study from our Sabbath School Quarterly, which this week covers the books of Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8. Um, so also, if you have your Bible with you and want to follow along in the Bible, that will be handy. Or again, if you maybe follow, read your Bible online, there's Bible apps you can get online. If, if somebody listening to this service is really new to coming to church, just check it out on your phone. You can get a free app of the Bible and read it in any translation you want and anytime you want. Okay, so before we get into our study, let's bow our heads for prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you are with us. And that's what we're studying this week in your word, Lord. You said that you are with us. You are with us always. You love us so much. And we are so grateful that you are our father. You are above and beyond even the best of earthly fathers. Oh, heavenly father, even the best and most beloved of our, of our earthly fathers, pales in significance and in wonderfulness to you. And you love us so much more than even our dearest, dearest love or friend or family member on this earth could ever love us. You love us more than that, way more than that. And Heavenly Father, we just ask that you be with us today. Bless us with your presence. Speak to our hearts. Speak to us in the Bible, through the Bible, and through all things. We pray for those who will be bringing the, bringing the, the study to, to our ears today. We pray that you'll be with us too, be with our mouth, be with our thoughts, be with our words, and be with us as we listen, that our hearts might be attuned and receptive to what you have to say. Heavenly Father, we pray for our world, we pray for our families and our loved ones. We lift up every single one there are so many needs, we couldn't even begin to list them. Lord, be with us, be with us. Show us the way, show us the truth. Help us to believe. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, to get you oriented where we are in our reading of the Bible and the book of Isaiah, um, the book of uh, of Isaiah is written by a prophet. Um, I forget the century. Maybe one of our illustrious teachers who follow behind me can tell us what century Isaiah was written in because I have forgotten. 
but it was quite a ways after the time that the, the Israelites left Egypt, which familiar story, of course, we all know, probably. Um, the patriarch Abraham had a son who had a son whose name was Jacob and who was re later renamed Israel by God. And then Israel had, had 12 sons who life went on and they went to Egypt and they became slaves in Egypt. And some 100 years or 150 years later, Moses led them out of Egypt and they all settled in what they called the promised land, which was the, the land where, where their grandfather Abraham had, had homesteaded. Um, and these, the descendants of these 12 brothers, the sons of Israel, each had a territory. And at first, they cooperated and they worked together and they regarded one another as family. And as sometimes happens, things degenerated over the years and over the centuries until at the time of Isaiah, what had happened is so many of the children of Israel had basically left the faith, strayed away and either become sort of half and half, sort of like nominal Christians, only they weren't Christians back then, but nominal Israelites. Um, and just basically doing their own thing and following worldly ways. And God knew that that was not going to do them well, and they had enemies. And how can you have God's strength and protection if you to you're totally ignoring him and going your own way? So that's the setting for the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is God's messages to the people as he as he earnestly desires to draw them back to himself and to bless them. Isaiah, if you just pick it up and read it, that book, um, it sounds harsh and mean and cruel, but God is describing what happens without him. And he's saying, people, this does not need to happen to you. Come back, return to me. So we are reading the wonderful prophecies that Isaiah gave and and that the people received. Um, I, uh, I was especially touched by the very beginning of this lesson. Any of you who do have your Sabbath school book and have read it or have read it on, online on the app might remember the, the lesson about the book, uh, the chapters seven and eight begins with, um, just a story, an anecdote um, about a, a fire amongst high-rise buildings. And a little girl who was blind was probably home alone, maybe, home anyway, in her apartment up in the building on whatever floor up high. And she was blind, but she knew, of course, there was an emergency and everything. And the fire truck had come and they were rescuing people and bringing them down and they had a net and some of the people were jumping and the little girl was at the window or on the balcony and she was looking down and they were saying, jump, jump, but she couldn't see the net and she wasn't going to jump, jump into what? And you know, they're yelling, she can't hear that very well probably. And then her father who was away or whatever, he comes running back home to, to save his family and he sees his daughter up there and she won't jump. And he gets the bullhorn and he says to her, this is your father, there is a net. Jump, when I say jump. And he's, I guess he probably counted one, two, three or something like that. And he counts one, two, three, jump. And she jumped and she was so trusting in her dad's voice that as she tumbled down however many floors and landed in the net, she was perfectly relaxed. And they said that she was so relaxed that she didn't even get like a sprain or a whatever from hitting hard in the net. And that's how our Heavenly Father is. And that's what this lesson is all about. So... I'm going to turn you over 
two are Sabbath school teachers. Uh, the first two sections of our study are going to be covered by Mary Ann Rule. The first section is called Prophecy Fulfilled and Foreseen Consequences. And you can kind of go along with that thought based on what I was telling you about where the people were at. The next section, or the next teacher, is going to be Sharon Foster, who introduced our worship today. And she's going to handle the sections in the book that are called What's in a Name and Nothing to Fear When We Fear God Himself. And the conclusion of our study today will be by Jonathan Corcoran. And he's going to have the section that's called Gloom of the Ungrateful Living Dead. Good luck, Jonathan. Woo! <laughs> okay, I'm going to pass the podium on now to Mary Ann. Good morning, church. What an honor it is to be here with you and with those that are online to worship our God on this beautiful Sabbath day. This was a pretty monumental week for Americans. We were just able to witness a ceremony. Oh, sorry, microphone's going crazy. Um, a ceremony which we have the honor and privilege to be a part of as Americans. And it doesn't matter at this moment that we're talking about as to which candidate you supported. Let's reflect a moment as to how great this country and our government, our God-given government is that one of the most powerful leaders in the world peacefully transfers power to another candidate and another leader, the one that won the election, as we have our government in place to elect another leader. What a privilege and an honor it is to be an American. And we can even protest. Unfortunately, some protests can get out of hand. But we have the privilege to say, I don't like that leader, without real repercussions other than another opinion that may come back to us. So I'm very grateful, and I don't take for granted the sacrifices that has, have been made for this government to exist and have this peaceful transition. May God continue to bless America. But what does this have to do with Isaiah? What does it have to do with God? And what does it have to do with our lesson in the Bible? Well, because this is not a political platform. This is a platform to praise, edify, and glorify God. During Isaiah's time, as Linda gave us such a great introduction, their kings were established all through the promised land. The whole area that we know as Jordan, Israel, Syria, all that had been scattered out throughout these 12 tribes. One of them in particular was Judah. And Judah had a king named Ahaz. And Judah was a bad king. Don't take my word for it. Take the Bible's word for it. And I'm going to read to you a, a 
excerpt from 2 Kings 16, 2-4. Once again, that's 2 Kings 16, 2-4. Now, what does this ancient book and this ancient king that happened before Christ was born, not even a little, it's over 700 years before Christ was born, what does that have to do with us today? Well, God gives us all of this history that happened over time. And to give us this faith and confidence in him that he is in control. Even if the person that is the leader is not the leader you would choose and can be bad and bad to a degree of evil that we don't witness. So again, I'm going to read to you 2 Kings 16, 2-4. And this is about King Ahaz. Unlike David his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He even sacrificed his son in fire following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So, that's pretty bad. That's pretty evil. That not only is he not following God's ways, he has sunk so deep into the darkness that he sacrificed his own son. And he's king of Judah. So, let's talk a little bit more about Ahaz. And he was a weak man whose foundation was not the foundation of God. As Linda said, some of these kings were sort of in and sort of out. Well, you can't be just sort of in for God. If you're just sort of in for God, you aren't in for God. You cannot live and believe in the ways that are evil, but yet be for God. It's just impossible. Well, that's what Ahaz was doing. And he was very weak and very fearful. And he really kind of had a lot on his mind. He's a very small country. He does not have a wealthy um, and a large um, army, let's say. And the Syrian government that was way at the top was going to attack and was conquering. That's what they did. But in addition to that, his brother nations, Israel and Syria, were plotting to conquer Judah and put in a a straw king in his place, so they would be a little bit more powerful over Syria. So Ahaz was concerned not only about this conquering Syria, but about Israel and um, Syria. So what does he do? He decides, you know what? I think what I'm going to do is partner up with this other evil king that is not a godly king, and he's going to partner with him in Assyria, the big conquering nation. So to show his goodwill to this king, he decimates the temple of God and the treasures in the temple of God and gives them to this king and says, oh, I, my allegiance is with you. And he goes further. He builds a temple in Judah to worship in the worldly manner and to worship their gods. And you know what that does? That's telling the other world, my God isn't strong enough. I can't rely on the God, my God. I need to rely on your gods gods that are wooden, gods that are bronze, gods that are make-believe, and not 
our almighty Lord God. So he thought that King Assyria would protect him. Is it a good plan to sell out God? I don't think so. So how is God supposed to get through to this evil man? And God knows the beginning to the end. And even in his omniscient presence and omnipotent manner, he still appeals to Ahaz. And how does he do that? He uses the prophet Isaiah to appeal to Ahaz and gives him a chance, more than a chance. So I'm going to read to you Isaiah 7, verses 7 to 9. And this is the appeal of Isaiah, excuse me, the appeal of God through his vessel, Isaiah. Again, that's Isaiah 7, verses 7 to 9. So what he's saying to him about Israel and Syria So this is the first appeal, and he's telling him what's going to happen. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram, which is Syria, is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only raisins. Within 65 years, Israel will be too shattered to be a people, the head of Israel is Shamaria, and the head of Shamaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So what he's saying is trust me. Trust your Lord and God. It's pretty applicable to today. Because some people aren't very happy about who is our leader. And others think, you know, that I am happy. We chose the right one. But stand in your faith. Trust and believe or you will not stand at all. But Ahaz didn't believe him. But did God give up? Did he walk away? And all through this millennial time, God has been appealing to the people and to the king, just like Linda gave us on our intro. So when Ahaz rejects God's offer and his prophecy, he still used Isaiah to tell Ahaz to appeal to him with a um, with a blessing. So I'm going to read to you Isaiah 7, 10 through 12. This is one of the greatest appeals and call to faith God made to anyone that is recorded in the Bible. This is similar to God asking Solomon, ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And Solomon asked for more wisdom. Let's see what does Ahaz do. Again, I'm going to read Isaiah 7, 10 through 12. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to test seems rather admirable. I will not put the Lord to test. But Ahaz isn't asking for the sign. The Lord himself, through Isaiah, is asking for him to ask ask anything. And he rebukes God. So, did the Lord know how evil Ahaz was? Yes. Did the Lord know that Ahaz was going to reject him? Most likely. 
did God still try and try and try to reach this man's heart? Absolutely. Until it was so cold, his heart was so cold and so much like stone, and he was so fearful, and he believed in what he thought he could see and touch. He didn't believe in what he couldn't see. And he couldn't see it because he didn't have a relationship with God. God doesn't just show up at a moment. God doesn't just show up when things are bad or when things are good. He's with us all the time. So put your trust in the Lord God every single day and watch how your relationship with him will grow. Watch how he will bless you. And however that is to you, whether it's reading his word and or serving him and or praying and or asking, whatever your method is, all of the above, one of the above, spending time with God builds a relationship with what is unseen will become seen. So back to our president and Ahaz. Are you going to put your trust in a man or a woman? Or are you going to put your trust in God? Well, the Bible gives us a quick lesson. And this is Psalms 146.3. Again, that's Psalm 146, verses 3 and, probably three and 5. It says it really clearly. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Blessed are those whose help is the Lord God. Keep your eyes on Jesus. My sections start with Isaiah 8, and as is so often the case with Bible um, writers, especially those who were doing prophecies, they tell you something, and then they go back and tell you it again in a little more detail, and that's exactly what we're finding here in Isaiah 7 and 8. Um, Isaiah 8 is kind of recovering what was said in Isaiah 7 and adding to it. Our passage for this section is the first few chapters of um, chapter 8, or the first verses of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Mahishalal Hashbash. Yeah, well, I probably butchered it, but you got it. <laughs> and take faithful witnesses of the record, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah. Chaya, whatever. Then I went to the, into the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name, there it is again, Mahibash, whatever it is. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of, or by the king of Assyria. Ancient writings seem to indicate that this is probably Isaiah's second wife. They are kind of in agreement, although we're not going to prove that, I guess, 
that his first wife died soon after his first son was born. So in essence, what God is saying to Isaiah, write the name of your unborn, unconceived child in a scroll. In other words, Isaiah, create a birth certificate for a son that will be born sometime in the future, before it's even conceived, before any ultrasound has been taken, before the egg even left the ovary. Okay, you get the picture. This is way before this child was even known about, and Isaiah is naming him. You see, God was with them even before the sign that he was given and before they could even understand the sign. So that when Isaiah is recording this name, um, it's already a prophecy. The name meant swift is booty and speedy is the prey. Recording that they would be prey and it would happen rather swiftly that the assets of their land would be taken. This child was a warning to the nation of God's predictions, both for Judah, for their enemies, and for them eventually themselves. Before the child would be able to understand how to save father and mother, the spoils of war from the capitals of Syria and northern Israel, who were Judah's enemies threatening them at this time, would be taken by Assyria. And do you know that within two years, Damascus was plundered by the Assyrians? How old is a child when they usually start talking? Sometimes about one, they're saying, Mom, Ma, or at least we hope they're saying, Mom. I'm not sure if they have any understanding of it. But by the time a child's two, they usually are be able to understand who Mama is and Dada and talking. So... By the time this child is two, this prophecy has been fulfilled. And it was 12 years later that Israel was totally devastated. Now, the interesting thing to me is that in this society, in the Middle Eastern society, especially with Jews, age 12 was the age of maturity. By the time the child was 12, they were considered adults. Many of the girls were even married by the time they were 12, 13 years old at that time. So by the time this child is grown, your enemies are going to be destroyed. But like Marianne told us, Ahaz did not believe that. Do I ever get tired of waiting for God to act? Ahaz didn't even seem to wait. Now Isaiah goes into um, a portion of his instructions to us where he gives three contrasts for Judah to consider when they're trying to make this decision. The first one is about waters. They were supposed to choose whether they wanted the gently flowing waters of God's care or the mighty flood that Assyria would overwhelm them with. And in um, Isaiah 8, verses 5 to 8, the Lord spoke to me again and said, My care for the people of Judah is like the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, but they have rejected it. They are rejoicing over what will happen to King Rezin and King Pekah. Therefore, the Lord will overwhelm them with a mighty flood from the Euphrates River the king of Assyria, and all his glory. This flood will overflow all its channels and sweep into Judah until it is chin deep. It will spread its wings, submerging your land from one end to the other. O Emmanuel. How gracious of God to say, this destruction is going to be pretty total. O Emmanuel. Despite the destruction coming, God is not leaving them. Emmanuel, as you probably know, is God with us. <clears throat> Excuse me. The phrase, refuse the waters of Shiloh, in essence says that they refused God's sign and his intervention. So the mighty flood from the river uh, Euphrates would overtake them. 
Because Judah had refused God's message of assurance, they would be overwhelmed with the mighty power of Assyria, which was represented by the flooding waters from the river Euphrates. Assyria would swoop in all the way to its next victim, Judah. As verse 8 had said, then it will sweep into Judah and spread its wings and fill the breadth of your land. Ahaz had turned to Assyria. The names of Isaiah's son referred to Judah as well as to northern Israel. That swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, but a remnant shall return. We learned last week, I think, if you studied your lesson, that um, Isaiah's first son's name meant, but a remnant shall return. They were a prophecy to um, what was coming, be about what was coming. And was there still hope? Because although Assyria would fill Emmanuel's land, they still had the promise that God was with them. So God's message to them is that there are judgments coming on God's enemies in Judah and the other nations. Even so, the Lord will be with his faithful survivors and restore them to their land. Never forget, despite our own failings and our own falling, God is still calling and still wants to be with us. Moving on, then, to the next few verses, we are going to learn about nothing to fear when we fear God. These verses supply this second contrast that has been presented by Isaiah. Choose a trap or choose a sanctuary. And he says it this way, the Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. He says, don't call everything a conspiracy like they do, and don't live in dread of what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. He will keep you safe. He will be your sanctuary. But to Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many will stumble and fall, never to rise again. They will be snared and captured. God's prophecy here will come true. They had the choice to make that it would, would not have to come true, but they chose a different path. In his first inaugural address on March 4, 1933, President Franklin D. Roosevelt told a nation disheartened by the Great Depression, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Isaiah's message, similar, except it clarifies that we have nothing to fear when we fear God himself. Fear is a powerful motivator. It's one we do need um, to keep us alive. For example, if you drop your phone in, in the subway on the subway tracks, it's a good idea if you have a healthy fear of that train coming and stay off the tracks. Go get another phone. Misplaced fear can be problematic, though especially if it causes you to overlook or underestimate a greater danger. Something like when you're driving in the car and there's a bee flying around. Do you swat the bee? Do you take care of the bee and have an accident? Um, scammers use fear to prey on people and convince them that they could part with some of their money in favor of the scammer. Fear is wrong. Is Fear of the wrong thing is bad, and we should evaluate decisions and their potential dangers rather than an impulsive response. Isaiah was faced with various dangers. So the Lord warned him in our passage for this section of our study that with very strong words that he should not think like everyone else does. Don't call everything a conspiracy like they do. And don't live in dread of what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven, heaven's armies, holy in your life. He is the only one you should fear. 
In this command, we understand that fear is more than an emotion. It is a choice. The Judites feared the wrong thing. The conspiracy against them from the Syrians and the northern kingdom, even though it was real, it distracted Judah from their fear of God and placing their trust in him. Despite his warnings and comforting messages, Judah chose to ignore them. Human conspiracies, then, whether they concern national or church politics or something else, can absorb a modern Christian's and make them lose faith in the divine power that's there to protect them. It ensnares them to Satan's schemes and separates them from God. It's easy to fear what everyone else fears, but God's true people should look higher, higher to him. For Isaiah, there was not comparison between earth-shaking power and glory of God that he described in Isaiah 6, and any threatening force that puny human beings could muster. He had no reason to fear the earthly troubles that his fellow citizens feared because the true fear of God is holy, means that you recognize in him the ultimate power of the universe. And such fear overcomes any other fear. That's what Isaiah understood from this and what most of the Judites missed. You see, if someone who has awesome power is your friend, with whom you share a mutual love, you don't fear that person in the sense that you think he or she will hurt you, but you do have a kind of fear in the sense that you know and respect the power of that person and the boundaries of your relationship. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and it shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. That's a paraphrase from the Bible text. And in John 1, 4, 18, we love because he loved. We fear him because he is love. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The third con contrast in this choosing um, thing that Isaiah gave us is found in the next few chapters of Isaiah 8, 16 to 22. And we're going to let that be explained to us by Jonathan. said, I'm going to let Jonathan explain that. I all of a sudden realized the gravity that rests on my shoulders. So I'll try and get this out in an understandable way. I teach Sabbath school all the time, and I really enjoy it. Small groups are my favorite, but I've never gotten to do one in this big a class. This is really great. The ladies have been doing a great job so far. Thank you. So we're on Thursday's lesson. Let me take a moment, actually, to realize a lot of you, just like Linda was saying, a lot of you aren't aware of our study guide we use, and a lot of you don't come to Sabbath school regularly. Uh, but I want to encourage you, too. And I think a lot of people don't come because they're shy, and a, and a small group kind of experience might seem a little intimidating to you. But please don't. Please come. It's, it's a lot of fun. Small groups are great. We get to talk. We get to discuss. I'd much rather sit and talk with you than, than preach, you know, because it's, it's uh, preaching is one way, talking is two way, and I, and I like that a lot. I learn just as much from the class every week as I think as the students do, and we, ha we have a great time, and the, the study outline is great. The study outline that our, our uh, conference has come up with, the pastor was telling me, if you go through it in its entirety, which I believe it's five years, he said at the end of it, had you paid attention, you'd about have a theological degree if that because that's about what they cover in college in that way so if you take the time to go through it and try and understand it as they package package it to you it's really a wonderful blessing and it's free you can get it online you can download it we ran out 
here. So I've actually been printing them out every week because people show up in class who don't have their own. So yeah, get into it. It's really a lot of fun. So we're on Thursday's lesson now, which is discussing the gloom of the ungrateful living dead. And this is discussing the aspect of where we are in Isaiah, where the pagan culture that they were steeped in, the king was steeped in, was consulting uh, mediums and spirits. They were really very much tied into the occult, and they hadn't gotten that from God and God's religion. This was something God, through his love and mercy, had told them to stay away from for their own good. But they had really, really dived in with both feet. And we can see that. What I'd like you to do in true Sabbath school class form, I'd like you to turn there with me to Isaiah 8. I want to hear Bible pages turning. I want them to be turning so furiously I can feel it in my hair. I want you guys participating. Isaiah 8, 16, we're going to go through 22. And you guys will probably recognize some of these verses as something that you've heard a lot, maybe not in their entirety. So Isaiah 8, verses 16, we're going to start there. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob. I love that text. That was our memory text for the week. Verse 17, I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob. Basically, Isaiah is saying, although God is hiding his face from our nation right now because of our actions, I will wait on him. I will have faith in him. That's a wonderful, wonderful text. It's very reassuring, and I love that if you actually take the time to read through Isaiah, I understand it's a very thick book. It's like eating a very thick stew. It's very, very good for you. And if you're new to this, don't, don't be discouraged. It's a wonderfully complex and thick book. But if every time you go through it, every time you read it, you'll pick out more and more and more. It's multi-layered. A lot of people who don't know God and they don't know the scriptures, they may pick it up, they may pick up the Bible, and they can just randomly come to almost any spot in the Bible. And they might think, this doesn't make sense to me. This is a bit strange. You know, the language, the culture is different than ours. And even so, even though it's in our language, you're st- it's still very powerful. It's very deep. So it takes a lot of going over it and a lot of cross-reference to really understand the depth of it because how else could God convey the great depth of what he wants to say to us? It can't just simply be on the surface. We need to go through it. So uh, let me just encourage you. Don't be ins- discouraged. Some of the places you won't understand, you'll put a pin in it and say, I'll come back later to that. And that happens to me all the time. Like, I genuinely do not comprehend this paragraph. I can't for the life of me make sense of it. But you continue reading through Scripture and it ties into somewhere else in Scripture, and you go, oh, that's what he was referencing. That was makes sense. So don't, don't be discouraged. Keep reading through. So we're on verse 18 now. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are the signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. You can see the poetic language he's using, him and his children. Marianne was talking about it. They had names that meant something. They were prophetic. So they were a living parable, a living parable to the community around them. God was conveying that message in that way. And in verse 19, And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? And in verse 20, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it, hard-pressed and hungry, and, shall happen, and it shall happen when they are hungry, and they will be en- enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward, when they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. See, Isaiah, God is speaking through Isaiah, and he's saying, if they go to these spirits and these mediums, it's just going to drive them further from me and further into discouragement, further into darkness. An exa- a case in point is the story of Saul when he went to visit, visit the witch of Endor. For those of you who don't know that story, Paul was the first chosen king of Israel. And for quite some time, he did well in the sight of God, but he slowly let pride get to his head, and it contaminated his entire soul to the point where God's repeated messages to him were being disregarded, disregarded. So finally God said, I won't speak to you anymore. You've clearly chosen your path. A great disaster was coming upon the king and the kingdom. So he said, what am I going to do? God won't talk to me. The prophets won't talk to me. What do I do? And he said, find me a witch. I'll go ask her. You guys remember the story. How can you, can you believe, how could that have come about, this, this man chosen by God at first, to come so far to the point where he wouldn't do what God asked, he wouldn't humble himself. So God said, okay, I, I can't communicate with you anymore. And so you go to a witch, a representative of Satan, to get advice about a coming battle. That um, journey has always seemed strange to me, how you could go from one extreme to the other. 
So he goes to the witch. His men find him a witch. You guys can read the story, and I recommend you do so you can get more out of it. I'm only allotted a few minutes, but it's quite a thick story. But she pretends to raise Samuel from the afterlife, and Sam, the pr professed Samuel gives Saul a message, and it's a message of doom. You guys remember that? I remember reading it as a child. I was like, that's so weird, and it kind of makes sense. And, and at first glance, someone who doesn't know God and doesn't know Scripture might go, oh, wow, that must have been Samuel from the afterlife, because look at what he says to Saul. He says, nope, you're going to die in the battle tomorrow. Your sons are going to die. It's all over for you. And I'm thinking, yeah, well, God warned him of this same thing. You know, that sounds right. But upon further investigation, you realize it's Satan's strategy to discourage people into defeat. And we read that just now here in Isaiah. If they go to these mediums of Satan to get advice or to see the future, they will just be led further into darkness and further into gloom. You all remember the story about Jesus healing many people who were demon-possessed. Do you ever wonder how those people got demon-possessed? They were tampering on the ground of Satan. They were consulting mediums. They were speaking with witches. Satan was luring them in to this kind of dynamic where luring them in with really good bait. Would you guys recommend this really good bait? Who here wouldn't want to know what's going to happen next month or next year? That's really good bait, right? So he's luring them in, and God is warning them away from that for their own good. But you see it so tantalizing. It's like those fish headed towards the light, you know, those angler fish in really deep oceans that has that light, you know, that, that bait right there, and the fish just can't help it. They're going right towards it, and we're kind of like that. We, that's such so alluring to us, but God's warned us away for our own good. He's not saying, no, don't talk to Satan. We don't like him. <laughs> he's not saying that at all. He's saying, no, for your own good, stay away from these things. And it's an interesting thing because we... In Christianity, we don't think about this dynamic of spiritualism very much. We don't talk about it. But when it comes up in situations like this, all of a sudden we realize how relevant it is. And God is warning us off that ground for our own good and our own protection. And as always with our lesson, what we're trying to do is take away something personally for our own lives. And I think personally it ties back exactly back to the, one of the first texts we read. And that was in Isaiah 8, 17. He says, I will wait on the Lord even though he's currently hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait on the Lord. That is, that's the key right there. We get impatient. Saul was not willing to go through God's channels and wait for God's time. He wasn't patiently waiting on the Lord. And you can read time after time in Scripture where God has given us stories to teach us. He gives us stories. He gives us these stories in language we understand. We humans, we relate by experience and context and stories. That's how we relate, so that's how he speaks to us. But he's giving us these examples of people through Scripture. They didn't wait on the Lord, and it was disastrous for them. So the takeaway is to wait on the Lord. Wait patiently. God loves us, and although he doesn't peel back the future for us in some ways that we might, might want him to, he has our best interests at heart. So faithfully waiting on the Lord. That's, that's the key. That's the takeaway for us personally. We need to develop a relationship with God where we love and trust him. And although he may withhold something from us, like maybe not showing us the future in the way that Ahaz wanted to see it, it's for our own good. He does that for our own good. God absolutely loves us. We need to realize and trust in the level of God has for us. Amen? We could talk a lot more about this issue. It's a very, very packed issue, but they only gave me eight minutes, so I hope it was a blessing.